located in strip malls around the country, most people know Goodwill as the charity where they donate used clothes and other household items. The more daring take advantage of the bargains to be had at Goodwill. Among the items, Americans discard to the thrift shopping economy. Less commonly known are the ways in which Goodwill works with communities to assist people in accessing employment training. Goodwill works in thousands of communities across the country and Canada, focusing on training and jobs for people with disabilities, veterans and military families, older workers, youth, citizens returning from prison, and English language learners. The skill demands of the labor market have changed markedly in recent decades. As technology evolves, the labor market will continue to change with it. Goodwill has established itself as a training broker, helping to fill the gap between employer needs and worker skills. My guest today on Hardly Working is Steve Preston, the CEO of Goodwill Industries International. Before taking the helm of Goodwill, Steve was Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. In this episode, we map out the challenges lower-skilled workers are facing in the technological economy. We also discuss the impact of the COVID-19 health crisis on these workers and how now, more than ever, we should be thankful for their sacrifice and service to our families, communities, and the national economy. While we live just a few miles from each other in Northern Virginia, we met today over Zoom. Steve Preston, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. We have already learned that we are more or less neighbors here in Northern Virginia, which is a little odd. We could probably sit down across a cup of coffee and have a good conversation as well if that were permitted right now, but it's not. So I think that most Americans are familiar with Goodwill. We see them in our neighborhoods. It's a brand that has a lot of appreciation for what it does, but I think it'd be really helpful to start this off with you kind of giving us the big picture of what Goodwill is, its size, what it does, all those kinds of questions. Yeah. So most people do know us for our stores and they generally know that there's something good that happens there, but they don't really exactly know what it is. But the mission of Goodwill is to help people reach their full potential in life through learning and the power of work. So our whole, our real mandate is to work with people going through transition, people with life challenges, people who are having a hard time getting ahead, be able to prepare themselves for in advance through the workforce. And so we help people who are going through transitions like coming out of the military or maybe people who've been displaced, but we also help people with greater life challenges, people who are in poverty, people coming out of incarceration, people with disabilities. And so we really see work as an opportunity for people for a better life. And that's really what we do. Now, one of the ways we do that is through our network of stores. There are 157 independent affiliates across North America. So each one of the local Goodwills is actually an independent 501c that's part of a broader network. We have 3,300 stores. We have 130,000 employees. We also have a $750 million business services business where we do you know, janitorial work and, and food commissary work. We provide manufacturing services in some cases. And then a lot of the funding from that, it does two things. First of all, we, we employ people with challenges, but then the funding from those business activities also supports dedicated workforce development centers. We provide face-to-face services to 1.6 million people a year. And those are people that come to us for specific job training. They come to us for various types of, of courses, coaching and mentoring, job placement services. So, And people come to us really at all stages of readiness. And we bring them in and we, we, we evaluate sort of where they are in terms of 
their job readiness and work very carefully with them to make sure that they can then get on a path to a better future. We are really all about the value of work in people's lives and helping them reach their potential through that. This is not an easy time to be in business for anyone. I suspect that that's as true for Goodwill Industries as anybody else. What's going on right now in your network? How are your teams kind of responding to the crisis? Well, you can appreciate that because of the work we do in helping people move into and through the workforce that there is a rapid spike in demand for our services. One of the challenges we have is uh, the local restrictions. People can't come into job centers generally. And fortunately, we've been able to pivot to online and virtual support in about 80% of our locations. So we continue to provide one-on-one support. We're actually doing online courses. We're providing online support in terms of job readiness skills. We've got a very important partnership with Indeed. And so that has kicked into high gear. They've been terrific partners with us to help us work with people who are participants in our program, do assessments, understand the skills they need and prepare for the workforce and then find those jobs. So it's been a, you know, our, our capabilities online have been emerging and we've been investing in those and, and now they're really being put to the test. And the pivot has been very quick and very successful in a lot of ways. The other thing is a number of the services we provide continue to be essential services, right? So if we are providing certain contract services, those continue. And we're able to fortunately continue to provide employment for those people. You anticipated my question. We hear a lot about essential workforce in the middle of this crisis. It's come as a, a surprise to some, not everyone, just how essential people working in kind of entry-level positions really are. We are completely reliant on grocery store workers and cashiers and pharmacies. Have you thought about that as Goodwill Industries being a provider of essential workforce? Well, yeah. I mean, I've thought about it that way. And I've also thought about it in terms of a person trying to take care of a family in many ways. And so, number one, I'm incredibly thankful for people who continue to work in those essential services, because in many cases, they are in sort of high traffic areas like grocery stores or hospitals or those types of places. And then what we don't see is our logistical networks, you know, people who are keeping the shelves stocked, keeping food flowing throughout our economy. And those are many of the people we work with. In some cases, we put them in those roles, but in many cases, we also work with them to advance beyond those roles. I'll also say it's been great for us because... of our stores are closed. Unfortunately, most of those locations are not considered essential, although in some cases, we're still taking donations. And we've been able to partner with many of those essential service providers to provide opportunities for the people who don't have the opportunity to work in our stores right now. Walmart announced that they're picking up, that they're hiring about 150,000 people in the current market. We've got a partnership with them. We're working very closely with them. So I'm, I'm also very thankful to those organizations that provide essential services and and do need a workforce because we're working closely with them to provide them with people in their operations. And many of them are coming out of our stores. I see it in my own local grocery stores as well. I mean, they've always been employers of people with disabilities. Those people with disabilities are still showing up. They are. It's so great to see, isn't it? I mean, you just, and it also, I think it does two things for us. Number one, it validates what people can contribute, right? Number two, it brings people together that we don't always see. And it brings the community together in a different way. I was behind one of the grocery store the other day who clearly had some severe disabilities. 
and it was it was sort of a little bit of a comical situation because I was in a hurry and I got behind this person who needed a lot of time. And it was just sort of this little pocket of blessing to see her interact with the people in that store, to see that it was part of her community, to really just be very thankful for that. It really is a wonderful thing to see. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I think that crises are like these are extremely difficult. And especially, for, I think, for people kind of at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, I think the challenges are, are so profound. We get to see how much we need those people who are really keeping the whole show running right now, which is a good and healthy reminder of the need for solidarity mm-hmm. within society and, and appreciating people for what they can do rather than thinking about what they... It also shows us the value in those yeah. jobs and the contributions yeah. that people make to yeah. all of us across the workforce. Yeah. And in many cases, we don't always dignify people in certain jobs or dignify certain jobs, but, but really there's dignity yeah. in all work. And people are bringing forward something that is an essential service to every one of us. And it's really important for us to take a step back and, and understand that value. And I agree. Yeah, Now's I, the time when we see that. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about in that regard is you know, how this is going to impact our thinking about work after the crisis is over. Hopefully, memories won't be so short that we forget what those workers are doing for us right now. We can have a, another conversation about the dignity of work and the need for people to have dignified work and to make sure that when the next crisis hits, they do have medical leave, they do have family leave, they do have a wage that can get them to a place where they can support themselves and their families. And I think this is going to have a huge impact. I hope it does have a huge impact on how we think about the dignity of work and what all the elements that make up a dignified job. I agree. As I said, I think there's dignity in all work. And I think that's one of the most essential components of value that we get out of work. I think it's much bigger than just the financial component, when, which obviously we need. It's core to our ability to sustain our lives and take care of ourselves and our families. But there's something much deeper about the value of work. That's why it's so core to our mission. Yeah, that's why I was really moved by this story that ran in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago of, of home health aides. You know, basically working minimum wage jobs. But the people that they serve are entirely dependent upon them, you know, for therapy, physical therapy, for personal care, for all of these things. And these workers are getting on the subways and buses and doing their jobs, which they derive a lot of sort of what I call psychic income. Mm -hmm. You know, they do it because they love it. They love caring for people. That's what actually gets them on the bus or on the train to do this and not the money. The money is important, but... It's that, that sense of satisfaction. So let's talk about some broader questions of workforce development as it relates to the kinds of populations that Goodwill is best known for, it. You know, working with the disabled, working with people who have serious barriers to employment. One of the issues that, I'm, you know, that I focus a lot of my attention and thinking on is in the realm of a set of skills that goes by various names. Some people call them soft skills. Some people call them non-cognitive skills. Some people call them professional skills. But what it amounts to is, can you work effectively with other people? I'd like you to reflect on how Goodwill thinks about that, about that issue. Yeah, I, I would call them essential skills. You know, it's funny. I started my career in finance. I'm a finance MBA. I was a banker. I was a CFO before I started running companies. I remember hearing 
Frances Heselbein speak, who had been the head of the Girl Scouts, and she ran the Drucker Institute and has written a number of books on leadership. And I remember her saying, it's the soft part of business that makes the biggest difference, and it's the hardest to get right. And I was sitting there as a CFO saying, you're completely right. And how do I you know, develop the right side of my brain, right? And so it's not just entry-level workers. It's not just mid-level. It is, up, it is the entire workforce for whom those soft skills are important. It's those interpersonal skills that often make a person's ability to operate within an organization, you know, work or not work. It gets to things like teamwork and collaboration, emotional intelligence, communication, your ability to listen and, and take in information and understand what's coming at you. Conflict resolution is a huge issue. Difficult conversations, persuasion, motivation, all those things that we use in the workforce to help us be successful. And I think many times when people come to us for support, they haven't, they haven't really had an opportunity to test those skills or to even think about developing those as skills and how to apply them in the workforce. And so often, those are the essential tools that we need to be successful. And when you think about you know, being on a project team or even being able to bring your ideas forward and communicate, or if you, you know, kind of move into you know, further, sort of further up the food chain, if you think about project management skills or change management or product design, all of those require certain types of cognition and, and communication and interaction to be effective. And if you don't have those, you can't negotiate your way through the workforce and you can't really take in information and put information out effectively in that setting. So it's, it's absolutely essential. I always think about them in terms of being master skills. So the, the master skills allow you to acquire and use all the other skills. If you don't have them, you can try to layer on technical skills, but without that foundation, they don't really work. One of the things I find remarkable is that these things are implied. And another name that I use for them is implicit skills rather than explicit skills. They're, they operate in the background. And we sort of assume this of people, like everybody knows how to do this. And in fact, not everybody knows. And it isn't just a problem among low-income workers. It's, it's a problem across the economy. If you, if you talk to employers, they always say, you, know, you ask them to list the top 10 things that they're looking for and not finding in the, in the workforce. And the top eight of the 10 are not technical in nature. They're, they're about communication and teamwork and perseverance and resilience and conflict management and all those things. Yeah, they, they are. And I, I think the other thing to remember is based on your history, based on where you're coming from, whatever your circumstances is, you've developed a certain set of tools to get yourself through life. To negotiate your way through life. If we're working from somebody, you know, somebody who's coming out of incarceration and they've been there for 10 or 15 years, they're walking into a completely different set of rules and a completely different thing, set of issues that they'll be facing, a completely different set of skills that are required. And when you think about somebody walking into a room and looking at a group of people, what is in their mind? How do they think about engaging with them? How do they think about listening to them? Do they trust those people? What is their attitude toward the, those people? People come with different histories into those situations, and the way they act in situations often is almost more instinctual because of what they've learned along the way. And it's really important to understand that because when we do deal with, when we do work with people who have challenges in life, we have to understand where they're coming from. 
And we have to understand, you know, what those barriers truly are because they're different. To your point, I think we just kind of assume that they're there and that everybody just, you know, is going to behave the same way. And they're not. And there's a reason they're not. And we have to dignify that reason. And, and when we're working with people to help them find opportunities in the workforce, we have to give them visibility into why that situation is different and what it's going to take to be successful and why that's going to be important for being successful. And if we don't do that, we don't really dignify what people's backgrounds are. And we don't really kind of respect the challenges that they have. And you know what? Any one of us in different situations would be coming forward with the same set of skills, the same set, the same mindset, the same sort of issues. And it's not just, I mean, I, I was intrigued by your reference to working with people coming out of the military, because that kind of represents the other end of a spectrum of behaviors that you learn in the military, which can be difficult to translate into the civilian workforce, right? Yeah. So people coming out of the military are used to working in a hierarchy, they're used to following orders, they're used to the mission mindset, which is an incredible asset, you know, for any business to have people like that. But they all have to add to that a complementary set of skills, which is about which takes the hierarchy away and makes everything team-based and collaborative and you know, problem solving as a group yeah. rather than, than receiving orders. Do you find that the military folks that you're working with or coming out of the military have some of those challenges? I think what we find with people coming out of the military is there's a strong sense of just getting something done. You know, you've got people who stick to it, who've got an incredible amount of tenacity, and they see that end game and they'll get it done. There's also a, you know, a tremendous amount of respect for authority. There's a good sense of accountability, but there, there, is a, there is a hierarchy. And if you're going into a more fluid, less structured situation, people need to learn that they've got sort of permission to work in a different way. But the other thing about the military that's great is you are very committed to each other, right? You are very committed to somebody on your team and you look at them really as being your partner. So the people that come in from the military, I think, connect with their fellow employees, not only in a really positive way, but sort of with a sense of accountability to each other. One of the, I think, challenges that some employers have, I think, in looking at people coming out of the military is how to take the specific skills that they've developed there and apply them to the work setting. And it, sometimes it does require you to be just a little bit more creative. But I have to tell you, the people I've, I've, I've hired out of the military have just you know, been terrific. And just like anybody else, you have to make sure that the skills that they have are, in some cases, modified or developed to be appropriate to the situation. I also think one of the challenges, frankly, for people coming out of the military, especially if they've you know, seen combat or been in difficult situations, is there's this tremendous sense of purpose and cause and urgency in this situation. And you know, when you come into a corporation, you know, it's, it's just different. It's sort of day-to-day. And, you know, you're anchored in a very different way when you're in the military. The good news there, I think, is people can connect with where you're going and really help drive it there. But you got to make sure that, that that transition takes place well. But we have a lot of programs for veterans. It is really just an incredible joy to be part of serving people coming out of the military. And I think the good news is here is employers have have opened up so much to supporting people coming out of the military. And it's been a, we've just seen some terrific partnerships there. So 
it's really, you know, one of the, one of the areas of work that we do where we do a lot of it, which I think just is, you know, particularly gratifying. Let's talk a little bit in the specifics of how you approach the training of these essential skills, as you call them. You actually, you know, would come into one of our workforce development sessions and there would actually be training modules and you would actually go through a curriculum and learn about these skills and how to apply them in the workforce. Also, throughout the process, you would typically have somebody who would be a coach that you would be working with or, you know, a mentor. That is often one of the most essential elements of helping people move from their current situation into a much better situation. It really is a combination of what I would call sort of formalized training, as well as sort of standing shoulder to shoulder with people and helping them through the process. You know, so often people who come to us are people that haven't had access, don't have visibility into opportunity. Sometimes they come to us with difficult backgrounds. So, you know, they often kind of see what they don't have more than what they do have. And I often say we see more in people than they see in themselves often. When we work with them, it's important for us to give people a vision of what those possibilities are, but also very specifically be realistic about the path to get there. And as we're working with people to acquire skills, whether it's soft skills or hard skills along that path, it's important to give them visibility to say, this is how this will work for you in the future. This is how this will serve you in the workplace so that people can, can, can acquire that kind of confidence as they move through the process. Yeah, that contextualization, I think, is, and you touched on a couple of important issues there. The contextualization of the training, I think, is really important. I think that that idea of shoulder to shoulder, one of the challenges with essential skills or soft skills or whatever you want to call them is that they're not easily broken down into classroom training. There's a reason for that because that's right. not how they develop, actually. They develop in a kind of moment to moment exchange that people have from the time that they're infants until they go out into the workforce, they're learning these skills. And so you're, you're kind of having to back up and lead people through situations to get that practice of exchange, interpersonal exchange, that didn't occur for whatever reason right. earlier in their lives. I think adult learners especially need to see a purpose, right? So, you know, it's different than, you know, our kids that are, you know, in school where you sit in a class and you learn a bunch of stuff and they, it's okay for them to say, what am, how am I going to use this, right? For adult learners, it's very important for them to see, for them to have that context, as you said, and, and to understand how the skill that they're developing is going to connect in a tangible, valuable way in the future. And it motivates people. It gives them that commitment because as an adult learner, you also come to the table with a lot of challenges. You, you may be holding down a job. You may be raising a family. You may have other challenges in life. And investing the time in education and learning comes at a greater cost and is much more difficult. So people need to see that relevance. Right. No, I think that's an extremely important point. So if we think about those essential skills as being essential, foundational, does Google seek then to put that training into or incorporate or integrate it with actual technical skill training? How do you take someone once while you're working with them on those foundational skills to actually give them kind of market relevant skills in particular? So one of the most critical things that we do is intake. An assessment. So when we think about kind of the, the continuum of this process, you have sort of an intake and assessment process to say, where is this person and what do they need? Do they need a job today? 
and there's a situation where they need a job today, but we want to work with them on a better job tomorrow. Is it a situation where they've got capacity? And also, what skills do they bring to the table? And where do they want to go? Then sort of in that next phase is what I would call sort of the skills provisioning or procurement process, right? And then ultimately, you're moving them to a placement situation where we work with employers along the way. So at that front end, you need to be able to say, what does this person need and how are they going to get it? In some cases, people may be relatively job ready, but for a set of hard skills. In other cases, we know they're just not job ready. And so that will, that will determine you know, what that pathway looks like and what sort of combination of support that they need. And so like everybody who is all leaders of organizations that are in this field of trying to equip lower skilled workers for the modern economy, mm-hmm. one of the big problems is kind of the pace of change in the economy, the premium on skill development, the way that skills can become very quickly outdated and overtaken by technology. How are you all thinking about that? Yeah, that's a really important issue. And before the whole you know, kind of coronavirus crisis, we were focused very heavily on this whole concept of the workforce in the future, how the job skills were or demands were changing and what we would need to do. And before the crisis, we were in a situation where you had 7 million unfilled jobs and roughly 6 million unemployed and more than that sort of underemployed. So we already saw this skills gap based on what employers were demanding and what people had to bring to the table. It was clear that that bridge had not been built sufficiently and needed to be. So a a big part of what we were doing was beginning to expand our investment in support for the most relevant skills. So we, we rolled out a very extensive digital skills initiative about two years ago. And within the first year and a half, we had about 600,000 people acquire some level of digital skills. And it was sort of five levels of certification. And those were foundational skills in many cases. And people who went further through the program got programming skills and help desk skills and those types of things. But what we found is with those foundational skills, they were able to go into roles where employers may provide them further development, or they could use basic computer skills in any number of jobs. About two-thirds of the jobs created since 2010 required some level of proficiency in digital skills. So you know, those jobs became available for those people. We also provided people with very specific credentialing type skills. So in, in 2018, about 38,000 people got credentials through Goodwill to provide them the ability to go in very specific jobs, whether it was healthcare or trades or those types of things. We were looking more expansively into data proficiency type skills. So from our perspective, we've worked very hard to put in place opportunities for both foundational skills and sort of those skills where the square peg hits the square hole, which tend to be much more kind of credential based. That's absolutely a commitment that we will expand because that's not going to change anytime soon. Tell me about your partnerships with employers, because I think that is frequently a an underappreciated factor in the nonprofit workforce development world, at least that I've seen, is like you actually have to have some place to send people mm-hmm. got them trained. So tell me who your major partners are. How how do those partnerships function in terms of actually being able to place people in jobs? I think one of the great things about Goodwill is we are very much a balance between you know a large national organization and a very connected 
set of local organizations. So in any community that we're in, we will be very close to the local employers in those communities. Frequently, we'll have partnerships with community colleges. We'll have partnerships with other service providers. And we'll be very familiar with the local population, which means what's the skill level, who are the job seekers, that type of thing. So that combination is very important because it allows us to do two things. Number one, at a local level, it helps our local goodwills have the ability to diagnose very specifically what the need is in their local marketplace. And then as we understand that across the country, it allows us as a national organization to develop supports that are relevant locally. But not every location is going to have the same requirements because you may have you know, two or three very large employers in a particular area that have very specific needs that may be different from some other area. The key here on the local side is relevance, right? The key here is to say, this is what the employer needs. This is how we're preparing people. And we believe that that will lead to jobs. In some cases, we will actually work with employers to train them for specific jobs. We will have either career center support, we'll actually have you know, what I would call kind of simulated classrooms that might be like the environment that the employer actually has that would prepare them. It's that combination that's so important because at the end of the day, you can acquire skills, but if they're not relevant to your job market, they're not going to be very helpful. So those are local employer relationships. On the national level, we have very important relationships. We've got a big relationship with Indeed that works with our local goodwills to help us work with our participants to sort of do assessments on the skills they need to present themselves effectively so that employers will really get a good sense of who they are and what they bring to the table, and then to work with them actually on the job placement side. And so that's been a critically important partnership for us because they have just such a a large reach. We've got very important partnerships with Walmart. Walmart has been a terrific supporter of ours to provide very targeted training programs that really do connect local needs with the people in those markets and help us understand what those connections look like and provide very specific training. Google's been an important partnership of ours to develop digital training programs as well as support local goodwills in their ability to deliver services digitally. So it's really been it's really been both these national relationships that give us both competencies and networks, and the local relationships that give us relevance there. What are some of the special challenges that you see in Goodwills that are operating outside major metro areas? There's always more kind of job opportunities in more populated areas, but what about Goodwills operating in rural areas or exurban areas? How do they cope with that employer relationship placement issue? Yeah, it's challenging. So, you know, you've got issues with broadband, you have issues with people getting access to job centers, you also have issues with just job availability. We work very hard to ensure that people get access. So I mentioned our digital skills initiative. In a couple of our rural areas, we actually had people outfit these bigger than vans, sort of small buses with digital classrooms. And we were actually driving to different small towns and holding the digital skills classes in those locations in these large sort of vehicles. So we try to be very creative in getting out there. More and more, as I mentioned, we're helping people connect with us virtually. Obviously, they need to have access to broadband to be able to do it. So, you know, one of the big issues there, there is access. But I think in rural America, the issue with jobs continues to be a problem. And if you look at any demographic projections, 
most demographers are projecting that there's going to be a continued migration to cities and not just very large cities, but a number of cities. And certainly I'm concerned that that's going to be a continued challenge for our rural areas. The other component, however, which I think we're sort of part of the way in and trying to figure out is in a gig economy, there are obviously some challenges for the workforce in terms of what their employer relationships are like, but it also does give people access to work remotely a lot more effectively. And I don't know that we really have that figured out. And I don't really think the country has that figured out. But certainly, one of the things on my mind is if people need to access work through the gig economy more effectively, how do we play in that space most effectively? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, I had an interview with a reporter from the Wall Street Journal on this. Her take was kind of like, well, you know, the gig economy, and that's so hard for people who have disabilities. And I said, well, I'm sure there are aspects of the gig economy that are very challenging for people with disabilities. On the other hand, it may present some really significant opportunities for people with disabilities to have access to work in ways that we wouldn't typically think of. Maybe working you know, from home, maybe working remotely, maybe doing work that doesn't require intense face-to-face activity all the time would actually be a benefit to people. Yeah, I think on any of these you know, kind of big issues or big trends, often we gravitate to one large narrative or another large narrative when the the issues, the opportunities, the complexities are much, much more nuanced. Part of the challenges, obviously, of the gig economy is people getting benefits in healthcare and all these other, you know, benefits from being full-time employees. But there are tremendous benefits. There is a lot of flexibility and it does give access to people otherwise. And so I think when we look at these big problems, we have to really zero in on what's good and zero in on what's not good and look at the nuances there and address the nuances rather than kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. What makes an organization like Goodwill so wonderful is that it is deeply embedded in community and can actually deal with the nuances, both the nuances of the community and the nuances of the individuals that it's serving. Just a quick comment on that. I was talking with one of our CEOs in Florida earlier this week about the local response one of the things many of our local organizations are doing is helping in ways that have nothing to do with what we do typically. We're using our truck networks to pick up you know, supplies for hospital and food for food banks. We're using our donation centers to collect food. We're doing all sorts of other things. We're manufacturing face masks. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. People are just jumping into action. But this particular CEO said, you know, I'm in touch with 80 organizations in my local community. We're working together. And I think the important thing to understand, especially for people who come to us with different challenges is nobody has everything. And local, being embedded in a community and being part of that fabric allows us all to benefit from a continuum of support in our communities, especially people who need it the most. And that's why a purely national organization is less effective because they're not embedded in that way. And that's where I, you know, the two sides of our model work very well. And I couldn't do anything from where I sit without the not only tremendous dedication, but but deep understanding and insights that our local CEOs have. That's a terrific point for us to wrap up on because I think it, it really touches on the moment that we're in, which is, you know, we're a country of 330 million people spread out across a continent. There's no way that any centralized authority is going to be able to map a complete response to the COVID crisis from Washington, D.C., you can't map a complete response for your organization from where you sit. Empower those people. You can support those people at the local level. 
who are just fixing the problem. They're not thinking about some big grand strategy. They're fixing problems. And that's what we need right now. So, Steve, thank you so much for your time. This has been inspiring. I'm really grateful for your work. And look forward to catching up with you again after we're through this, kind of get your take on how things went and what you learned out of the whole, this whole episode and what we can learn as a country out of it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.